Section 26 of Essays and Reviews by Charles Hodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Slavery, Part 2. It is, however, argued that slavery must be sinful because it interferes with the inalienable rights of men. We have already remarked that slavery, in itself considered, is a state of bondage, and nothing more. It is the condition of an individual who is deprived of his personal liberty, and is obliged to labour for another, who has the right to transfer this claim of service at pleasure. That this condition involves the loss of many of the rights which are commonly and properly called natural because belonging to men as men is readily admitted. It is, however, incumbent on those who maintain that slavery is on that account necessarily sinful to show that it is criminal under all circumstances to deprive any set of men of a portion of their natural rights. That this broad proposition cannot be maintained is evident. The very constitution of society supposes the forfeiture of a greater or less amount of these rights, according to its peculiar organization. That it is not only the privilege but the duty of men to live together in a regularly organized society is evident from the nature which God has given us, from the impossibility of every man living by and for himself, and from the express declarations of the word of God. The object of the formation of society is the promotion of human virtue and happiness, and the form in which it should be organized is that which will best secure the attainment of that object. As, however, the condition of men is so very various, it is impossible that the same form should be equally conducive to happiness and virtue under all circumstances. No one form, therefore, is prescribed in the Bible or is universally obligatory. The question which form is, under given circumstances, to be adopted is one of great practical difficulty and must be left to the decision of those who have the power to decide on their own responsibility. The question, however, does not depend upon the degree in which these several forms may encroach on the natural rights of men. In the patriarchal age, the most natural, the most feasible, and perhaps the most beneficial form of government was by the head of the family. His power, by the law of nature and the necessity of the case, extended without any other limit than the general principles of morals over his children, and, in the absence of other regular authority, would not terminate when the children arrived at a particular age, but be continued during life. He was the natural umpire between his adult offspring, he was their lawgiver and leader. His authority would naturally extend over his more remote descendants as they continued to increase, and on his death might devolve on the next oldest of the family. There is surely nothing in this mode of constituting society which is necessarily immoral. If found to be conducive to the general good, it might be indefinitely continued. It would not suffice to render its abrogation obligatory to say that all men are born free and equal, that the youth of twenty-one had as good a right to have a voice in the affairs of the family as the aged patriarch, that the right of self-government is indefeasible, etc. Unless it could be shown that the great end of society was not attainable by this mode of organization, and that it would be more securely promoted by some other, it would be an immorality to require or to effect the change. And if a change became in the course of time obviously desirable, its nature and extent would be questions to be determined by the peculiar circumstances of the case, and not by the rule of abstract right. Under some circumstances it might be requisite to confine the legislative power to a single individual, under others to the hands of a few, and under others to commit it to the whole community. 
It would be absurd to maintain on the ground of the natural equality of men that a horde of ignorant and vicious savages should be organized as a pure democracy, if experience taught that such a form of government was destructive to themselves and others. These different modes of constituting civil society are not necessarily either just or unjust, but become the one or the other according to circumstances, and their morality is not determined by the degree in which they encroach upon the natural rights of men, but on the degree in which they promote or retard the progress of human happiness and virtue. In this country we believe that the general good requires us to deprive the whole female sex of the right of self-government. They have no voice in the formation of the laws which dispose of their persons and property. When married, we despoil them almost entirely of a legal existence and deny them some of the most essential rights of property. We treat all minors much in the same way, depriving them of many personal and almost all political rights, and that too, though they may be far more competent to exercise them aright than many adults. We moreover decide that a majority of one may make laws for the whole community, no matter whether the numerical majority have more wisdom or virtue than the minority or not. Our plea for all this is that the good of the whole is thereby most effectually promoted. This plea, if made out, justifies the case. In England and France, they believe that the good of the whole requires that the right of governing, instead of being restricted to all adult males, as we arbitrarily determine, should be confined to that portion of the male population who hold a given amount of property. In Prussia and Russia, they believe with equal confidence that public security and happiness demand that all power should be in the hands of the king. If they are right in their opinion, they are right in their practice. The principle that social and political organizations are designed for the general good, of course, requires they should be allowed to change, as the progress of society may demand. It is very possible that the feudal system may have been well adapted to the state of Europe in the Middle Ages. The change in the condition of the world, however, has gradually obliterated almost all its features. The villain has become the independent farmer, the lord of the manor, the simple landlord, and the sovereign liege in whom, according to the fiction of the system, the fee of the whole country vested, has become a constitutional monarch. It may be that another series of changes may convert the tenant into an owner, the lord into a rich commoner, and the monarch into a president. Though these changes have resulted in giving the people the enjoyment of a larger portion of their rights than they formerly possessed, it is not hence to be inferred that they ought centuries ago to have been introduced suddenly or by violence. Christianity operates as an alternative. It was never designed to tear up the institutions of society by the roots. It produces equality not by prostrating trees of all sizes to the ground, but by securing to all the opportunity of growing, and by causing all to grow until the original disparity is no longer perceptible. All attempts by human wisdom to frame society of a sudden, after a pattern cut by the rule of abstract rights, have failed, and whether they have failed or not they can never be urged as a matter of moral obligation. It is not enough, therefore, in order to prove the sinfulness of slaveholding, to show that it interferes with the natural rights of a portion of the community. It is in this respect analogous to all other social institutions. They are, all of them, encroachments on human rights, from the freest democracy to the most absolute despotism. It is further to be remarked that all these rights suppose corresponding duties, and where there is an incompetence for the duty they claim to exercise, the right ceases. 
No man can justly claim the exercise of any right to the injury of the community of which he is a member. It is because females and minors are judged, though for different reasons, incompetent to the proper discharge of the duties of citizenship, that they are deprived of the right of suffrage. It is on the same principle that a large portion of the inhabitants of France and England are deprived of the same privilege. As it is acknowledged that the slaves may be justly deprived of political rights on the ground of their incompetency to exercise them without injury to the community, it must be admitted by parity of reason that they may be justly deprived of personal freedom if incompetent to exercise it with safety to society. If this be so, then slavery is a question of circumstances and not a malum in se. It must be borne in mind that the object of these remarks is not to prove that the American, the British, or the Russian form of society is expedient or otherwise, much less to show that the slaves in this country are actually unfit for freedom, but simply to prove that the mere fact that slaveholding interferes with natural rights is not enough to justify the conclusion that it is necessarily and universally sinful. Another very common and plausible argument on this subject is that a man cannot be made a matter of property. He cannot be degraded into a brute or chattel without the grossest violation of duty and propriety, and that as slavery confers this right of property on human beings, it must from its very nature be a crime. We acknowledge the correctness of the principle on which this argument is founded, but deny that it is applicable to the case in hand. We admit that it is not only an enormity but an impossibility that a man should be made a thing as distinguished from a rational and moral being. It is not within the compass of human law to alter the nature of God's creatures. A man must be regarded and treated as a rational being, even in his greatest degradation. That he is in some countries and under some institutions deprived of many of the rights and privileges of such a being does not alter his nature. He must be viewed as a man under the most atrocious system of slavery that ever existed. Men do not arraign or try on evidence and punish on conviction either things or brutes, yet slaves are under a regular system of laws which, however unjust they may be, recognize their character as accountable beings. When it is inferred from the fact that the slave is called the property of his master, that he is thereby degraded from his rank as a human being, the argument rests on the vagueness of the term property. Property is the right of possession and use and must of necessity vary according to the nature of the objects to which it attaches. A man has property in his wife, in his children, in his domestic animals, in his fields and in his forests. That is, he has the right to the possession and use of these several objects according to their nature. He has no more right to use a brute as a log of wood in virtue of the right of property, then he has the right to use a man as a brute. There are general principles of rectitude obligatory on all men which require them to treat all the creatures of God according to the nature which he has given them. The man who should burn his horse because he was his property would find no justification in that plea either before God or man. When, therefore, it is said that one man is the property of another, it can only mean that the one has a right to use the other as a man, but not as a brute or as a thing. He has no right to treat him as he may lawfully treat his ox or a tree. He can convert his person to no use, to which a human being may not, by the laws of God and nature, be properly applied. 
When this idea of property comes to be analysed, it is found to be nothing more than a claim of service, either for life or for a term of years. This claim is transferable and is of the nature of property, and is consequently liable for the debts of the owner and subject to his disposal by will or otherwise. It is probable that the slave is called the property of his master in the statute books, for the same reason that children are called the servants of their parents, or that wives are said to be the same person with their husbands, and to have no separate existence of their own. These are mere technicalities designed to facilitate certain legal proceedings. Calling a child a servant does not alter his relation to his father, and a wife is still a woman, though the courts may rule her out of existence. In like manner, where the law declares that the slave shall be deemed and adjudged to be a chattel personal in the hands of his master, it does not alter his nature, nor does it confer on the master any right to use him in a manner inconsistent with that nature. As there are certain moral principles which direct how brutes are to be used by those to whom they belong, so there are fixed principles which determine how a man may be used. These legal enactments, therefore, are not intended to legislate away the nature of the slave as a human being. They serve to facilitate the transfer of the master's claim of service and to render that claim the more readily liable for his debts. The transfer of authority and claim of service from one master to another is, in principle, analogous to transfer of subjects from one sovereign to another. This is a matter of frequent occurrence. By the Treaty of Vienna, for example, a large part of the inhabitants of Central Europe changed masters. Nearly half of Saxony transferred to Prussia. Belgium was annexed to Holland. In like manner, Louisiana was transferred from France to the United States. In none of these cases were the people consulted, yet in all a claim of service, more or less extended, was made over from one power to another. There was a change of masters. The mere transferable character of the master's claim to the slave does not convert the latter into a thing or degrade him from his rank as a human being. Nor does the fact that he is bound to serve for life produce this effect. It is only property in his time for life, instead of for a term of years. The nature of the relationship is not determined by the period of its continuance. It has, however, been argued that the slave is the property of his master not only in the sense admitted above, but in the sense assumed in the objection, because his children are under the same obligation of service as the parent. The hereditary character of slavery, however, does not arise out of the idea of the slave as a chattel or thing, a mere matter of property. It depends on the organization of society. In England, one man is born a peer, another a commoner. In Russia, one is born a noble, another a serf. Here, one is born a free citizen, another a disenfranchised outcast, the free coloured man, and a third a slave. These forms of society, as before remarked, are not necessarily or in themselves either just or unjust, but become the one or the other according to circumstances. Under a state of things in which the best interests of the community would be promoted by the British or Russian organisation, they would be just and acceptable to God, but under circumstances in which they would be injurious, they would be unjust. It is absolutely necessary, however, to discriminate between an organization essentially vicious, and one which, being in itself indifferent, may be right or wrong according to circumstances. On the same principle, therefore, that a human being in England is deprived, by the mere accident of birth, of the right of suffrage, and in Russia, 
as the small portion of liberty which belongs to a commoner, or the still smaller belonging to a serf. In this country, one class is by birth invested with all the rights of citizenship. Another, females, is deprived of all political and many personal rights, and a third of even their personal liberty. Whether this organization be right or wrong is not now the question. We are simply showing that the fact that the children of slaves become by birth slaves is not to be referred to the idea of the master's property in the body and soul of the parent, but results from the form of society and is analogous to other social institutions as far as the principle is concerned that children take the rank or the political or social condition of the parent. We prefer being charged with the sin of wearisome repetition to leaving any room for the misapprehension of our meaning. We therefore again remark that we are discussing the mere abstract morality of these forms of social organization and not their expediency. We have in view the vindication of the character of the inspired writings and inspired men from the charge of having overlooked the blackest of human crimes and of having recognized the worst of human beings as Christians. We say, therefore, that an institution which deprives a certain portion of the community of their personal liberty, places them under obligation of service to another portion, is no more necessarily sinful than one which invests an individual with despotic power, such as Mr. Burney would consent to hold, or than one which limits the right of government to a small portion of the people, or restricts it to the male part of the community. However inexpedient, under certain circumstances, any one of these arrangements may be, they are not necessarily immoral, nor do they become such, from the fact that the accident of birth determines the relation in which one part of the community is to stand to the other. In ancient Egypt, as in modern India, birth decided the position and profession of every individual. One was born a priest, another a merchant, another a labourer, another a soldier. As there must always be these classes, it is no more necessarily immoral to have them all determined by hereditary descent than it was among the Israelites to have all the officers of religion from generation to generation thus determined, or that birth should determine the individual who is to fill a throne or occupy a seat in Parliament. Again, Dr. Wayland argues, if the right to hold slaves be conceded, quote, there is of course conceded all other rights necessary to ensure its possession. Hence, inasmuch as the slave can be held in this condition only while he remains in the lowest state of mental imbecility, it supposes the master to have the right to control his intellectual development just as far as may be necessary to secure entire subjection. End quote. He reasons in the same way to show that the religious knowledge and even eternal happiness of the slave are as a matter of right conceded to the power of the master if the right of slaveholding is admitted. The utmost force that can be allowed to this argument is that the right to hold slaves includes the right to exercise all proper means to ensure its possession. It is in this respect on a par with all other rights of the same kind. The right of parents to the service of their children, of husbands to the obedience of their wives, of masters over their apprentices, of creditors over their debtors, of rulers over their subjects, all suppose the right to adopt proper means for its secure enjoyment. This, however, gives no sanction to the employment of any and every means which cruelty, suspicion or jealousy may choose to deem necessary, nor of any which would be productive of greater general evil than the forfeiture of the rights themselves. According to the ancient law, even among the Jews, the power of life and death was granted to the parent. We concede only the power of correction. 
The old law gave the same power to the husband over the wife. The Roman law confided the person and even life of the debtor to the mercy of the creditor. According to the reasoning of Dr. Wayland, all these laws must be sanctioned if the rights which they were deemed necessary to secure are acknowledged. It is clear, however, that the most unrighteous means may be adopted to secure a proper end under the plea of necessity. The justice of the plea must be made out on its own grounds and cannot be assumed on the mere admission of the propriety of the end aimed at. Whether the slaves in this country may be safely admitted to the enjoyment of personal liberty is a matter of dispute, but that they could not, consistently with the public welfare, be entrusted with the exercise of political power is on all hands admitted. It is then the acknowledged right of the state to govern them by laws in the formation of which they have no voice. But it is the universal plea of the depositories of irresponsible power, sustained too by almost universal experience, that men can be brought to submit to political despotism only by being kept in ignorance and poverty. Dr. Whalen then, if he concedes the right of the state to legislate for the slaves, must, according to his own reasoning, acknowledge the right to adopt all the means necessary for the security of this irresponsible power, and of consequence that the state has the right to keep the blacks in the lowest state of degradation. If he denies the validity of this argument in favour of political despotism, he must renounce his own argument against the lawfulness of domestic slavery. Dr. Wayland himself would admit the right of the Emperor of Russia to exercise a degree of power over his present half-civilized subjects, which could not be maintained over an enlightened people, though he would be loath to acknowledge his right to adopt all the means necessary to keep them in their present condition. The acknowledgement, therefore, of the right to hold slaves does not involve the acknowledgement of the right to adopt measures adapted and intended to perpetuate their present mental and physical degradation. We have entered much more at length into the abstract argument on this subject than we intended. It was our purpose to confine our remarks to the scriptural view of the question. But the considerations of the objections derived from the general principles of morals rendered it necessary to enlarge our plan. As it appears to us too clear to admit of either denial or doubt that the scriptures do sanction slaveholding, that under the old dispensation it was expressly permitted by divine command, and under the New Testament is nowhere forbidden or denounced, but, on the contrary, acknowledged to be consistent with the Christian character and profession, that is, consistent with justice, mercy, holiness, love to God, and love to man. To declare it to be a heinous crime is a direct impeachment of the word of God. We therefore felt it incumbent upon us to prove that the sacred scriptures are not in conflict with the first principles of morals, that what they sanction is not the blackest and basest of all offences in the sight of God. To do this it was necessary to show what slavery is, to distinguish between the relation itself and the various cruel or unjust laws which may be made either to bring men into it or to secure its continuance, to show that it no more follows from the admission that the scripture sanctions the right of slaveholding, that it therefore sanctions all the oppressive slave laws of any community, than it follows from the admission of the propriety of parental, conjugal, or political relations, that it sanctions all the conflicting codes by which these relations have, at different periods and in different countries, been regulated. We have had another motive in the preparation of this article. The assumption that slaveholding is itself a crime is not only an error, but it is an error fraught with evil consequences. It not merely brings its advocates into conflict with the scriptures, but it does much to retard the progress of freedom. 
it embitters and divides the members of the community and distracts the Christian church. Its operation in retarding the progress of freedom is obvious and manifold. In the first place, it directs the battery of the enemies of slavery to the wrong point. It might be easy for them to establish the injustice or cruelty of certain slave laws, where it is not in their power to establish the sinfulness of slavery itself. They therefore waste their strength. Nor is this the least evil. They promote the cause of their opponents. If they do not discriminate between slaveholding and the slave laws, it gives the slaveholder not merely an excuse but an occasion and a reason for making no such distinction. He is thus led to feel the same conviction in the propriety of the one that he does in that of the other. His mind and conscience may be satisfied that the mere act of holding slaves is not a crime. This is the point, however, to which the abolitionist directs his attention. He examines their arguments and becomes convinced of their inconclusiveness, and is not only thus rendered impervious to their attacks, but is exasperated by what he considers their unmerited abuse. In the meantime, his attention is withdrawn from far more important points, the manner in which he treats his slaves, and the laws enacted for the security of his possession. These are points on which his judgment might be much more readily convinced of error, and his conscience of sin. In the second point, besides fortifying the position and strengthening the purpose of the slaveholder, the error in question divides and weakens the friends of freedom. To secure any valuable result by public sentiment, you must satisfy the public mind and rouse the public conscience. Their passions had better be allowed to rest in peace. As the anti-slavery societies declare it to be their object to convince their fellow citizens that slaveholding is necessarily a heinous crime in the sight of God, we consider their attempt as desperate, so long as the Bible is regarded as the rule of right and wrong. They can hardly secure either the verdict of the public mind or of the public conscience in behalf of this proposition. Their success hitherto has not been very encouraging, and is certainly not very flattering. If Dr. Channing's account of the class of persons to whom they have principally addressed their arguments is correct, the tendency of their exertions, be their success great or small, is not to unite but to divide. They do not carry the judgment or conscience of the people with them. They form, therefore, a class by themselves, thousands who earnestly desire to see the South convinced of the injustice and consequent impolicy of their slave laws, and under this conviction of their own accord, adopting those principles which the Bible enjoins, and which tend to produce universal intelligence, virtue, liberty, and equality, without violence and sudden change, and which thus secure private and public prosperity, stand aloof from the abolitionists, not merely because they disapprove of their spirit and mode of action, but because they do not admit their fundamental principle. In the third place, the error in question prevents the adoption of the most effectual means of extinguishing the evil. These means are not the opinions or feelings of the non-slaveholding states, nor the denunciations of the holders of slaves, but the improvement, intellectual and moral, of the slaves themselves. Slavery has but two natural and peaceful modes of death. The one is the increase of the slave population until it reaches the point of being unproductive. When the number of slaves becomes so great that the master cannot profitably employ them, he manumits them in self-defense. This point would probably have been reached long ago in many of these southern states had not the boundless extent of the southwestern section of the Union presented a constant demand for the surplus hands. Many planters in Virginia and Maryland 
whose principles or feelings revolt at the idea of selling their slaves to the South, find that their servants are gradually reducing them to poverty by consuming more than they produce. The number, however, of slaveholders who entertain these scruples is comparatively small. And as the demand for slave labour in the still unoccupied regions of the extreme southwest is so great, and is likely to be so long continued, it is hopeless to think of slavery dying out by becoming a public burden. The other natural and peaceful mode of extinction is the gradual elevation of the slaves in knowledge, virtue, and property, to the point at which it is no longer desirable or possible to keep them in bondage. Their chains thus gradually relax until they fall off entirely. It is in this way that Christianity has abolished both political and domestic bondage whenever it has had free scope. It enjoins a fair compensation for labour, it insists on the moral and intellectual improvement of all classes of men, it condemns all infractions of marital or parental rights. In short, it requires not only that free scope should be allowed to human improvement, but that all suitable means should be employed for the attainment of that end. The feudal system, as before remarked, has in a great measure been thus outgrown in all European states. The third estate, formerly hardly recognized as having an existence, is becoming the controlling power in most of those ancient communities. The gradual improvement of the people rendered it impossible and undesirable to deprive them of their just share in the government. And it is precisely in those countries where this improvement is most advanced that the feudal institutions are the most completely obliterated and the general prosperity the greatest. In like manner, the gospel method of extinguishing slavery is by improving the condition of the slave. The grand question is, how is this to be done? The abolitionist answers by immediate emancipation. Perhaps he is right, perhaps he is wrong. But whether right or wrong, it is not the practical question for the North. Among a community which have the power to emancipate, it would be perfectly proper to urge that measure on the ground of its being the best means of promoting the great object of the advancement of human happiness and virtue. But the error of the abolitionists is that they urge this measure from the wrong quarter and upon the wrong ground. They insist upon immediate abolition because slavery is a sin and its extinction a duty. If, however, slaveholding is not in itself sinful, its abolition is not necessarily a duty. The question of duty depends upon the effects of the measure, about which men may honestly differ. Those who believe that it would advance the general good are bound to promote it, while those who believe the reverse are equally bound to resist it. The abolitionists, by insisting upon one means of improvement, and that on untenable ground, are most effectually working against the adoption of any other means, by destroying the disposition and the power to employ them. It is in this way that the error to which we have referred throughout this article is operating most disadvantageously for the cause of human liberty and happiness. The fact is that the great duty of the South is not emancipation but improvement. The former is obligatory only as a means to an end, and therefore only under circumstances where it would promote that end. In like manner, the great duty of despotic governments is not the immediate granting of free institutions, but the constant and assiduous cultivation of the best interests, knowledge, virtue, and happiness of the people. Where free institutions would conduce to this object, they should be granted, and just so far and so fast as this becomes apparent. Again, the opinion that slaveholding is itself a crime must operate to produce the disunion of the states and the division of all ecclesiastical societies in this country. 
The feelings of the people may be excited violently for a time, but the transport soon passes away. But if the conscience is enlisted in the cause and becomes the controlling principle, the alienation between the North and the South must become permanent. The opposition to Southern institutions will be calm, constant, and unappeasable. Just so far as this opinion operates, it will lead those who entertain it to submit to any sacrifice to carry it out and to give it effect. We shall become two nations in feeling, which must soon render us two nations in fact. With regard to the church, its operation will be much more summary. If slaveholding is a heinous crime, slaveholders must be excluded from the church. Several of our judicatories have already taken this position. Should the General Assembly adopt it, the church is ipso facto divided. If the opinion in question is correct, it must be maintained whatever are the consequences. We are no advocates of expediency in morals. We have no more right to teach error in order to prevent evil than we have a right to do evil to promote good. On the other hand, if the opinion is incorrect, its evil consequences render it a duty to prove and exhibit its unsoundness. It is under the deep impression that the primary assumption of the abolitionist is an error, that its adoption tends to the distraction of the country and the division of the church, and that it will lead to the longer continuance and greater severity of slavery, that we have felt constrained to do what little we could towards its correction. We have little apprehension that anyone can so far mistake our object or the purport of our remarks as to suppose either that we regard slavery as a desirable institution or that we approve of the slave laws of the southern states. So far from this being the case, the extinction of slavery and the amelioration of those laws are as sincerely desired by us as by any of the abolitionists. The question is not about the continuance of slavery and of the present system, but about the proper method of effecting the removal of the evil. We maintain that it is not by denouncing slaveholding as a sin, or by universal agitation at the North, but by the improvement of the slaves. It no more follows that because the master has a right to hold slaves, he has a right to keep them in a state of degradation in order to perpetuate their bondage, than that the Emperor of Russia has a right to keep his subjects in ignorance and poverty in order to secure the permanence and quiet possession of his power. We hold it to be the grand principle of the gospel that every man is bound to promote the moral, intellectual, and physical improvement of his fellow men. Their civil or political relations are in themselves matters of indifference. Monarchy, aristocracy, democracy, domestic slavery are right or wrong as they are for the time being conducive to this great end, or the reverse. They are not objects to which the improvement of society is to be sacrificed, nor are they straitjackets to be placed upon the public body to prevent its free development. We think, therefore, that the true method for Christians to treat this subject is to follow the example of Christ and his apostles in relation both to despotism and slavery. Let them enforce as moral duties the great principles of justice and mercy and all the specific commands and precepts of the Scriptures. If any set of men have servants, bond or free, to whom they refuse a proper compensation for their labour, they violate a moral duty and an express command of Scripture. What that compensation should be depends on a variety of circumstances. In some cases the slaveholder would be glad to compound for the support of his slaves by giving the third or half of the proceeds of his estate. Yet this at the north would be regarded as a full remuneration for the mere labour of production. Under other circumstances, however, a mere support would be very inadequate compensation. 
and when inadequate it is unjust. If the compensation be more than a support, the surplus is the property of the labourer, and cannot morally, whatever the laws may say, be taken from him. The right to accumulate property is an incident to the right of reward for labour, and we believe there are few slaveholding countries in which the right is not practically acknowledged, since we hear so frequently of slaves purchasing their own freedom. It is very common for a certain moderate task, footnote, we heard the late Dr. Wisner, after his long visit to the South, say that the usual task of a slave in South Carolina and Georgia was about the third of a day's work for a northern labourer. End footnote. To be assigned as a day's work which may be regarded as the compensation rendered by the slave for his support. The residue of the day is at his own disposal and may be employed for his own profit. We are not therefore concerned about details. The principle that the labourer is worthy of his hire and should enjoy it is a plain principle of morals and command of the Bible and cannot be violated with impunity. Again, if any man has servants or others whom he forbids to marry or whom he separates after marriage, he breaks as clearly a revealed law as any written on the pages of inspiration or on the human heart. If he interfere unnecessarily with the authority of parents over their children, he again brings himself into collision with his maker. If any man has under his charge children, apprentices, servants or slaves, and does not teach them or cause them to be taught the will of God, if he deliberately opposes their intellectual, moral or religious improvement, he makes himself a transgressor. That many of the laws of these slaveholding states are opposed to these simple principles of morals we fully believe, and we do not doubt that they are sinful and ought to be rescinded. If it be asked what would be the consequence of thus acting on the principles of the gospel, of following the example and obeying the precepts of Christ, we answer the gradual elevation of the slaves in intelligence, virtue and wealth, the peaceable and speedy extinction of slavery, the improvement in general prosperity of all classes of society and the consequent increase in the sum of human happiness and virtue. This has been the result of acting on these principles in all past ages and just in proportion as they have been faithfully observed. The degradation of most eastern nations, and of Italy, Spain, and Ireland, are not more striking examples of the consequences of their violation than Scotland, England, and the non-slaveholding states are of the benefits of their being even imperfectly obeyed. Men cannot alter the laws of God. It would be as easy for them to arrest the action of the force of gravity as to prevent the systematic violation of the principles of morals being productive of evil. Besides the two methods mentioned above, in which slavery dies a natural and easy death, there are two others by which, as history teaches us, it may be brought to an end. The one is by the non-slaveholders in virtue of their authority in the state to which the slaves and their masters belonged, passing laws for its extinction. Of this the northern states and Great Britain are examples. The other is by servile insurrections. The former of these two methods is, of course, out of the question, as it regards most of the southern states, for in almost all of them the slave owners have the legislative power in their own hands. The South, therefore, has to choose between emancipation by the silent and holy influence of the gospel, securing the elevation of the slaves to the stature and character of freemen, or to abide the issue of a long-continued conflict against the laws of God. That the issue will be disastrous, there can be no doubt. But whether it will come in the form of a desolating, servile insurrection, or in some other shape, it is not for us to say. 
The choice, however, is between rapidly increasing millions of human beings educated under moral and religious restraints and attached to the soil by the proceeds of their own labour, or hordes of unenlightened barbarians. If the South deliberately keep these millions in this state of degradation, they must prepare themselves for the natural consequences, whatever they may be. It may be objected that if the slaves are allowed so to improve as to become freemen, the next step in their progress is that they should become citizens. We admit that it is so. The feudal serf first became a tenant, then a proprietor invested with political power. This is the natural progress of society, and it should be allowed thus freely to expand itself, or it will work its own destruction. If a tree be not allowed to grow erect and in its natural shape, it will become crooked, knotted, and worthless, but grow it must. This objection would not be considered of any force if the slaves in this country were not of a different race from their masters. Still, they are men. Their colour does not place them beyond the operation of the principles of the gospel, or from under the protection of God. We cannot too frequently remember that it is our province to do right, it is God's to overrule results. Footnote. If the fact that the master and slave belong to different races precludes the possibility of their living together on equal terms, the inference is not that the one has a right to oppress the other, but that they should separate. Whether this should be done by dividing the land between them and giving rise to distinct communities, or by the removal of the inferior class on just and wise conditions, it is not for us to say. We have undertaken only to express an opinion as to the manner in which the Bible directs those who look to it for guidance to treat this difficult subject, and not to trace out a plan to provide for ulterior results. It is for this reason we have said nothing of African colonization, though we regard it as one of the noblest enterprises of modern benevolence. End footnote. Let then the North remember that they are bound to follow the example of Christ in the manner of treating slavery, and the South that they are bound to follow the precepts of Christ in their manner of treating their slaves. If both parties follow the Saviour of men, both will contribute to the promotion of human excellence and happiness, and both will have reason to rejoice in the results. End of section 26